New Church. Good to be with you tonight. My name is Lachlan, and we have the joy of opening up Isaiah for us this evening, helping us to feel the weight of what God has just said to us there in this chapter. Uh, we'll be considering a bunch of stuff across Isaiah 40 to 55. It's kind of a whole section of Isaiah. We're going to be in there for the next five weeks. But it's a good night tonight. We've got good news from God. You might have heard that word throughout Isaiah 40, the message of good news that God has for His people. So let's start by praying that God would help us to see Him and hear His good news. Let's pray. Father, thanks that we can come together tonight. Thanks for a good afternoon down at the viaduct, being a public witness to You. Uh, we pray that people would see that and be pondering even now what they've uh, heard about Jesus. Help us tonight as we come to Your Word to see You clearly. Give us humble hearts that we would hear Your good news Get us excited, Father, by your Spirit in us, well up in our emotions and our affections. Draw them to yourself. Help us to love you as we see you for who you are tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've noticed, and perhaps you've experienced this, we're not always good at recognizing reality. Uh, think of a couple of stories. A guy named Jack, he starts feeling the inklings of illness uh, his friends are telling him, you should probably go to the doctor and check that out. And Jack's like, no, no, I'm, I'm fine. It's okay, it's nothing. Bit of a flesh wound, bit of a scratch. Uh, finally, he goes to the doctor. He's left it too late. He finds out that he's got cancer and it's progressed to stage four. We're not good at recognizing reality. Think of Charlotte, a girl who's gotten herself into a toxic relationship with a boyfriend who uses and abuses her. Friends all around her are pulling out their hair going, why can't you see this? Why can't you see how bad this guy is for you? And Charlotte's just ignoring them, going, no, no, deep down he loves me. Sometimes we're not good at recognizing reality. Sometimes it takes something really drastic to open our eyes, to wake us up, to see reality as it really is. I wonder if you've had one of those moments, a time when you didn't think things were as bad as they actually were. What did it take in that moment to wake you up to reality? The book of Isaiah, so far, chapters 1 to 39, has been telling us about God's wake-up call to the nation of Israel. Back in the first chapter, we read that Israel had abandoned God. They despised Him. They turned their backs on Him. Instead of being a nation that promoted justice, well, the leaders of Israel were pursuing pleasure. These leaders had become corrupt. They were taking bribes. They were off partying and living in luxury, perverting justice just getting drunk at wild parties, and they thought that was okay. But God has been saying through Isaiah, God is not okay with injustice. God is not okay with being despised. Through Isaiah, through other prophets, God has been warning Israel that if they don't turn back to Him, He would abandon them. And He began to discipline them in the hope that they would wake up. He took drastic action trying to shake them to their senses. Stop doing evil, learn to do what is good. But Israel didn't listen to those warnings. So let's recap the history a little bit. Do you remember what's happened? There's a, a time frame up on screen that you might like to jot down, but it's just good to get this history into our minds. Israel wasn't heeding God's warnings. So in the year 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel got completely destroyed by the superpower Assyria. The southern kingdom, Judah, it was 20 years later that Assyria swooped down and destroyed pretty much everything. 46 cities were leveled. 
all that was left was the capital city, Jerusalem. And so at this point, where you once had Israel as a wealthy, prosperous, secure, wise nation, a large nation, there's a map up on screen showing you the extent, or almost the full extent, it got to be bigger than that under David's son Solomon, was this large, wealthy, wise nation. Uh, now in 701 BC, all that's left is that one city, Jerusalem. That's devastating. This is huge. It's what Isaiah was describing back in chapter 1. Have a look back at this language and now you can feel the weight of what he was seeing. He says in verse 5, Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? Wake up! The whole head is hurt. The whole heart is sick. From the sole of the foot even to the head, no spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts, festering sores, not cleansed, bandaged or soothed with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities burn down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion, that's Jerusalem, is abandoned. Like a shelter in a vineyard. Like a shack in a cucumber field. Like a besieged city. From a large nation down to one solitary city. It's a shocking reality. Is this enough discipline to wake up these few survivors in this last remaining city? Well, it will be. Uh, Jerusalem will turn back to God, but only for a short time. If you were with us last week, we met King Hezekiah. Now, he was a good king. He trusted in God. He turned back to God. He pursued justice. But by the end of his lifetime, he'd begun to trust in himself again. We read about it in Isaiah 39. Some visitors turn up from this small nation named Babylon and Hezekiah boasted to them, not about God, but about his personal wealth. He'd started trusting in himself. So God said to Hezekiah in Isaiah 39, verse 5 to 7, Hear the word of the Lord of armies. Look, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until today will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your descendants who come from you, whom you father, will be taken away, and they'll become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's brutal. God's saying to Hezekiah, your descendants, they're going to be shipped off to another country as slaves. They're going to get castrated. That's what it means to become a eunuch. They're going to be servants in the palace of another king where they would have been kings and princes within Israel. This is another big wake-up call for Israel, for the, this final surviving remnant. So what does Hezekiah do? Have a look at verse 8. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, well, the word of the Lord that you've spoken is good. For he thought, there'll be peace and security during my lifetime. Hezekiah doesn't wake up to reality. His son, Manasseh, a few years on, takes the throne and he becomes the most evil king that Judah has seen. The book of Kings describes his rule and says that he shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem with it from one end to another. And so God did what he told Hezekiah he would do. A hundred years go by and in 587 BC, Babylon at this stage has risen to power, they've overtaken the Assyrian Empire they're now the big superpower and they come in and destroy Jerusalem completely. They burn down the temple, 
They burn down the palace. They burn down all the houses. The city is burnt to the ground. And they take all of the people who were living in Jerusalem and move them over to the capital city of Babylon. So by 587 BC, Israel no longer really exists. They've got no king. They've got no land. They've got no temple. The people of Judah are deportees living in a foreign nation. And why had all that happened? That's what Isaiah has been telling us. Because Israel had forgotten their God, forgotten his ways. They didn't wake up to reality. As we sit here today, that might describe you. You're someone who's living without a care of who God is or what he wants. You've abandoned the one who made you, the one who loved you. You've despised your God. You might turn up to church regularly, but your worship of God is hollow. You honour him with your words, but your heart is far from him. That's you. God wants to wake you up tonight. And perhaps there's something happening in life for you right now that is God's wake-up call for you. God wants you to see now that you're in seriously bad state. Things need to change. I remember my wake-up call. When I was a young punk in second year of university, uh, I'd gone out drinking with some friends at university or at a club, got kicked out of the club because I was so drunk. I was sitting in the gutter, outside, vomiting into the gutter. I was a Christian at that point. I started singing Amazing Grace, honouring God with my lips. My heart was pursuing other things. And a homeless dude on the street next to me, it was about 2 a.m. in the morning, I was there trying to get some sleep, looked at me and said, dude, what the heck are you doing with your life? That was my wake-up call. God going, dude, things are seriously bad right now. You are not honouring me. What is it for you? That might describe you tonight, despising God, having abandoned God. Wake up. Wake up before it's too late and God burns down your life, now and into eternity. That's been the history of Isaiah so far, chapter 1 to 39. God's been speaking about the past, about what he has done in Israel, telling us... uh, the, the wake-up calls that he's been bringing to his people. And now we come to this new section of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, God starts to speak about the future. He starts to speak to the Israelites who are living 150 years after Isaiah. These Israelites who have been carried off to Babylon. Try to think, as we read Isaiah 40 verse 1, try to think yourself into that context where you're not in your land, you've been carried off to this other nation under God's judgment. And feel the beauty of God's words in chapter 40, verse 1, into that context. God says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. To a people living in exile, these are wonderful words. The God who had said to them in anger, you are not my people, and I'm not your God, he now comes alongside them with tender words of comfort. He comforts them with forgiveness. The forced labor that's spoken of there, that's talking about their time in Babylon, where they predominantly were servants. 
Their forced labor is coming to an end because God is forgiving their iniquity. When it talks about receiving double for all their sins, it's not saying that God kind of flipped out a bit too much and got a bit too angry with them and He's over-punished them. No, they actually haven't received what they deserve for their sins. If they'd received what they deserved, God wouldn't be forgiving them, right? Saying God is forgiving them, the, the language of double, it's actually saying that they've received an appropriate measure of discipline from God. Uh, that same word that's translated double, it's used back in Exodus to speak of folding a handkerchief on itself. You know, when you like to fold it nice and neatly and you get all the pleasure about the corners lining up. It's an appropriate measure, it's matching, it's fitting. It's saying here that they've received that appropriate discipline from God and now, now that's coming to an end. Now He's going to save them. These are words of hope in Isaiah. It, if you're here and you've been ignoring God all your life so far, no matter what you've done, there's hope for you. Hear God's tender care for you tonight. Comfort, comfort my child, says your God. A few chapters over in 43 verse 24, we hear again of God's kindness. He says to Israel, Indeed, you have burdened me with your sins. You've wearied me with your iniquities. I, I sweep away your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. It's pretty phenomenal thinking that human sin can weary the incomparably grand God. It's a bit illogical. It's quite shocking. It, it's evidence of the depth of emotional commitment that God brings to His relationship with His people. We weary God with our sin. And yet in that weariness, God steps towards us with forgiveness. He sweeps away our sin, wipes the slate clean. Tonight, God sees you suffering the consequences of trying to run life your way. I don't know what those consequences have been for you, but you do. And God has seen them. And He's saying to you tonight, tenderly, comfort, comfort. I'll sweep away your rebellion. I'll remember your sins no more. Turn back to God tonight. Don't try to hide your sin. He knows it. He's seen it all. He forgives it. Receive the comfort of God's forgiveness tonight. God comes to Israel and He says, I'll forgive you. But more than that, he takes decisive action to change our circumstances. This is what Isaiah calls God's good news, God's gospel. It's the kind of news flash that when you're watching YouTube, it's not an ad that pops up, but it's like the whole internet is shut down to make sure that you know what is happening. Big piece of news that everyone needs to know about. Come to Isaiah 40 verse 3. See God's grand news for the world, his big announcement. Verse 3. A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear. And all humanity will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah brings us in and it's as if we're watching a motorway being built. Looks like it's going a bit faster than the Auckland motorways do around us, but sorry to the engineers. Yeah, I can see Tim, you know, it's all right. I'm sure you're doing your best job. Uh, 
This is a motorway that's being built, and the site manager's there. He's calling the engineers, the surveyors, all the workmen, going, oh, we need, we need that bit to come down a little bit. We need a bit more fill to raise this up. Everything has to be flat. This isn't any motorway being built in Isaiah. Notice who it's for. This is a highway for the Lord. This is a highway for God. God's decisive act is to turn up. He's coming to town in all his glory, and he will be king. Jump down to verse 9, see how this gets filled out for us. Isaiah 40, verse 9, Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it, don't be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. This is good news. God is coming to be king. This is news to be shouted from the mountaintops, to be written across the sky in big sky writing letters. Here is your God. Think about hearing that as a faithful Israelite. So even amongst sinful Israel, there were a faithful few who had continued to trust in God, who had continued to honor God and follow his ways. And they've had to endure years of these dodgy kings who are perverting justice, who are filling the land with innocent blood. Now these faithful Israelites, they're living in a foreign country under a a king who's destroyed their homeland. Imagine being that person hearing, good news, God is coming to be king. It makes me think of the Lion King, right? Uh, I imagine most of you have seen the Lion King. Show of hands if you haven't seen the Lion King. Uh, A couple of people around there, all right. Uh, it's a good movie. It is a good movie. Uh, there's lots of other movies that have the same kind of feeling as well. But imagine you're in The Lion King and, and you've been living under the reign of Scar. The land's horrible. It's devastating. There's death everywhere. How good is it to hear that Simba has returned? That he's come back and he's going to be king? That is good news, right? Well, God is an even better king than Simba. true see see what kind of king god's going to be verse 10 goes on isaiah 40 verse 10 his wages are with him his reward accompanies him he protects his flock like a shepherd he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment he gently leads those that are nursing god comes as a strong but gentle king he's strong against the enemies of his people but he is tender and gentle towards his people. God's not a king who demands more from you than you're able to give. God's not a king that's going to domineer over you and use you. His people are not the means to his reward. His people are his reward. God is a king who carries people when they're weak, who looks after the orphan and the widow, the the vulnerable find protection with God. I love this image of our God. I love it because there are times when I need to be gently carried. There are times when I'm weak, when I'm hurting, when I don't feel like I'm worthwhile, when I feel like I've got nothing to give, when I need someone to come alongside and gently walk with me. I find in God a King who loves me. I love this image of God as well because we, it, it gives me hope in a world that's full of injustice. We live in a country in New Zealand where our government is not very corrupt. In terms of the Corruption Perceptions Index, I think New Zealand's ranked second 
as kind of the, the least corrupt nations in the world. And yet even within New Zealand, we're, we're hearing that our government is not providing justice for the unborn at the moment. I long for a king who will be just. And then beyond ourselves, as you look further around the world, you've got nations like North Korea, Venezuela, Myanmar, Macedonia. Nations where university students are compelled to bribe their lecturers with money or even with sex just in order to get a passing grade. You're thankful that you're living in New Zealand, right, where you get marked on your merit. But there are other nations where that's not the case where university students have to pay money or give up their bodies in order to pass their exams. Nations where aid money for the suffering population, instead of getting to people to provide food and shelter, the leaders of the land just gather it for themselves and and build up their stashes of gold and their luxuries. Our world is full of corrupt leaders, much like the leaders of Israel were. So as I look at that world, I love knowing that God will come And that he will bring justice and he will rule with tender, comforting care. The question I ask, though, is when? When is that going to happen? I want it to happen so much. When will God turn up? Well, in 539 BC, these words of prophecy in Isaiah, they were fulfilled in some ways. As you read through Isaiah 40 to 55, you read about this king named Cyrus. And God promises in Isaiah that he'll use Cyrus to restore his people Israel. And that happened. In 539 BC, Cyrus came and he took over the Babylonian Empire. Uh, He'd been fighting some skirmishes around. It was pretty funny, when he turned up to the capital in Babylon, he didn't have to lift a finger, he just walked in and they said, yeah, you're a better king than our current one, we'll take you. Uh, Their current king had not been worshipping their gods, whereas Cyrus was happy to worship their gods, so... He just kind of took over the Babylonian Empire pretty easily. And when he did that, he sent the people of Israel and said to them, you can go back to your land if you want. You can rebuild your temple. You can rebuild your city. I'll even give you some money. I'll give you all the stuff that we stole from there. That's a pretty good fulfillment. We read about it in the Bible, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. So if you want to know more about that period, that's where you can go. But as good as that return to the land was... It actually wasn't as glorious as everything that God had promised in Isaiah. It was good, but it wasn't ultimate. They got a temple back. It didn't look as good as the old temple. But even then, they weren't a nation in their own right. They never had a king. They they were never ruling on their own. And so even 500 years after that, you get to the first century, and you've got Jews living in Israel. They're under Roman rule at this point. And they're still waiting for God to turn up and save them. There's some fulfillment, but God still hadn't turned up. And then we get to Mark chapter 1. Come, come there with me. If you've got a Bible there, flick over. It's worth seeing this, just to see the comparison and make sure that you know where that is in your, in your Bible. Mark chapter 1. So we're now in the first century A.D., Pick it up at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. 
John came, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I hope that sounds familiar. People in the first century are seeing in John the Baptist the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. That's what's being quoted there. John is that construction site manager preparing the highway for God to turn up to establish his righteous and gentle rule. That John's here announcing the comfort of forgiveness. Now, who turns up next? Down in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came. God turned up and his name is Jesus. The Lord, the creator of all, stepped into the world as the man Jesus. He came as the Christ, the King. He came with compassion and gentleness. Think about what we see of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. When he sees a crowd of 5,000 on the hillside, they've come to hear his teaching. They don't have any food on them. He has compassion on them. He provides for them. As he's walking around the city, providing his teaching, he stops to speak to the outcasts. He, he touches the untouchables. He's known as the friend of tax collectors and sinners. He is a gentle king. He's the shepherd who, when one out of a hundred sheep go missing, he doesn't say, oh, well, 99 out of 100 is not too bad. He parks the 99 in safety and chases after that one to find it and bring it back. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, who defeats our enemies. Not other people, not empires. Jesus has defeated Satan, sin, and death. And so Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom over which he rules, is the freedom of eternal life. It's the freedom of sin forgiven, of Satan bound, of death destroyed. Jesus' kingdom is the freedom of his loving rule as he leads us in paths of righteousness. Jesus is the good king. He's the God king. And this is the good news of Christianity. This is our gospel. This is our message from the world to shout from the mountaintops. Jesus is king. And that's a good thing. Have a look down at Mark 1, verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. 700 years after Isaiah prophesied, now the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come because Jesus is king. So what do we do in light of that? Well, three things. We rejoice, we repent, and we wait. Rejoice, repent, and wait. Come back to Isaiah now. Come to chapter 52. This section from Isaiah 40 to 55, it really goes over some similar themes and just repeats them with new or different perspectives. So we're going to see in chapter 52 some similar stuff to what we've been seeing in chapter 40. And actually, you do well at some point over these next five weeks to just take an hour and a half, two hours, and read all of those 16 chapters in one hit. Just read from chapter 40 to 55 in a row. It'll do wonders for your soul. But come back to Isaiah 52 Keep your eye out for rejoicing and repenting. These responses that we have in light of God's action. Pick it up at verse 1. Wake up. Wake up. Put on your strength, Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, Jerusalem, the holy city. 
for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer enter you. Stand up, shake the dust off yourself. Take your seat, Jerusalem. Remove the bonds from your neck, captive daughter Zion. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing and you'll be redeemed without silver. The God who reigns as king has redeemed his people. And that is reason to rejoice. What does it mean to redeem? Well, you see there in the verse, you get that contrast between redeeming and being sold. So redeeming something is the opposite of selling something. God is buying Israel, their freedom, from exile. He sold them into Babylon's hands. And now he's brought them back to be his people once more. And with that contract changing hands, Israel is free. They can stand up, they can throw off their chains, they can return to their land. As you get down to verse 8, you see how exciting this is for them. Isaiah 52, verse 8. The voices of your watchmen, they lift up their voices together. For every eye will see when the Lord returns to Zion. Be joyful. Rejoice together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. All those themes we've been talking about, they come together in these verses. God is returning. He will reign as king. He speaks comfort to his people and he redeems them. This is such joy, such happiness. This is the best news. And with this news, Israel are called to action. Verse 11. Leave. Leave. Go out from there. Don't touch anything unclean. Go out from her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. For you won't leave in a hurry, and you won't have to take flight, because the Lord is going before you, and the God of Israel is your rear guard. Along with rejoicing comes repentance, changed behavior. Uh, Israel was to leave Babylon. That's something to do physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. They needed to purify themselves. To, to make sure that they weren't like the other Babylonians. They were God's people again now. They'd been living amongst this other nation. They'd been blending in kind of as if they were Babylonians. Now they're God's people again. Shake off the dust of Babylon. No longer are you Babylonians. You're God's people again. Leave the false gods of Babylon behind. Leave the sinful practices of Babylon behind. God's saying to them, you're my people now. I've redeemed you. I've bought you. So let's start living like God's people. A pretty good summary of it in Isaiah 44, verse 22. Have a look at this one. It's a great one to underline or highlight in your phone, whatever you're using there. Isaiah 44, verse 22. I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. See the logic there? I've forgiven you. I've redeemed you. God says, you're my people now. Return to me. Live as my people. Rejoice and repent. But I want you to notice something back in chapter 52. You have to do some thinking work here. It's a little bit tricky. This encouragement comes while they're still living in exile. Cyrus hasn't turned up yet. God's saying this to them while there's still a few years to wait. So you notice in chapter 52 there, God says that they're not leaving in a hurry. Do you see that? Not leaving in a hurry. They're to prepare for leaving, but they still have to wait. And now as you think about that, you actually start to realize 
all of this prophecy came to Isaiah 150 years before they even went into exile. For 200 years before they would return from that. They rejoice in anticipation. All that 200 years before they're going to return from exile, God's faithful people within Israel are hearing this word of Isaiah and, and they're waiting for God to turn up. The waiting doesn't just start once they get to exile and then exile almost comes to the end. The repenting doesn't just start when they get to exile and it almost comes to the end. All this is happening along the way. 200 years, God's faithful people are waiting for him to turn up, rejoicing in anticipation, repenting and living as God's people, calling others around them to do the same. When they do go into exile, there's a handful within Israel who have been faithful to God, who are already living distinct from the Babylonians, who aren't coming in with the Babylonian worship of other gods, who aren't coming in with the sinful practices of Babylon. You might know Daniel, character in the Old Testament. Think of him, one of those faithful Israelites who would have heard the, the promises of Isaiah and let that shape the way that he was living within Babylon, trusting that one day God would come back. They're rejoicing and they're repenting even as they wait. And Israel's journey here is an example, a taster of what God would do in Jesus. Because I said Jesus came 2,000 years ago, first century, God has turned up, and yet we're still living in this world of corruption. What's going on there? Well, come over to 1 Peter. Uh, it's a letter in the New Testament that draws a lot on the book of Isaiah. You see if we can see these same three themes there. Rejoice, repent, and wait. Coming to 1 Peter, we're looking at chapter 1. And we're going to pick it up at verse 13. Therefore, with minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Christians are people who are waiting. We're people who have our hope set on God to turn up. Jesus is now reigning as king. He has been for the last 2,000 years. And yet he's reigning alongside other existing kings and authorities. Isaiah has been fulfilled in part, but not in full. Isaiah has been fulfilled in part, the king now reigns, we can be part of Jesus' kingdom now, and yet we're waiting for the day when he will abolish all other rulers and authorities. At the moment, Jesus is waiting patiently, waiting for more and more people to freely acknowledge his authority, waiting for more and more people to willingly bend their knee to him as king. And that might be you tonight who comes to Jesus for the first time and goes, yes, I want you to be my king, just like Nisal and Nathan did recently. Is that you bowing the knee before Jesus willingly? That's what Jesus is waiting for. But the day will come when Jesus will return. And on that day, he's going to abolish all other rival kings, all other authorities, and all people who have been following them rather than him. So for now, as Christians, we wait. And while we wait, we live as foreigners within the world. Like Israel within Babylon, we live as foreigners within the world. We look different from the world because we're God's people. And so Peter encourages us in verse 14. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. 
conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. That language, strangers or foreigners or exiles. Christians are citizens of Jesus' kingdom who are just passing through in New Zealand. We've got a temporary resident visa. We're not going to be here for long. We're primarily citizens of Jesus' kingdom and secondarily citizens of New Zealand. We don't belong to the world anymore. And so Christian behaviour shouldn't conform to the world, but should be transformed to live like Jesus. He is our ruler. You know, whatever our society does with abortion, whatever changes might happen in the law, that doesn't change the Christian ethic. We're citizens of Jesus' kingdom first and foremost, and in Jesus' kingdom, life is valued. That might mean that one day, Christians break the New Zealand law because we follow the law of Christ. Are you prepared for that? Are you ready when you see a contradiction between what the government wants you to do and what Jesus wants you to do to follow Jesus? To say that primarily He is your ruler and secondarily the New Zealand government? We are citizens of Jesus' kingdom. That might mean that we'll we'll trust God with the consequences. There may well be punishment that comes from the government because we've broken their law. That's right and okay. We have to trust God with that. We're citizens of Jesus' kingdom first. Christians in a few years in Auckland, we might be those strange people who care for our infants and the elderly. Already, though, we should be those strange people who are faithful in marriages, who don't have sex outside of marriage, who use our words to build others up and not to tear them down. Already, Christians should look different from Aucklanders in our use of money, our pursuit of pleasure and leisure, our commitment to justice and truth. So it's a helpful exercise to consider. If someone was to follow you around for this next week and observe everything that you do, would they see that you're playing by a different rule book? What would they see that would show them that Jesus is your king? I trust that they'd see lots of things that would show them that. I hope that that's the case for you. But perhaps tonight, as you consider that question, there's something that comes to mind where you realise, actually, no, I've been following the world in that, not Jesus. I've not been playing by Jesus' rule book. I've not been honouring him as king. I've been going along with the way of the world. We are the redeemed people of God. We live differently. We wait, we repent, because like Israel, we have been redeemed. Have a look at 1 Peter 1, verse 18. Why do we conduct ourselves differently? For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. God has purchased you. He's paid the price for you to be forgiven so that you might be a citizen of his kingdom. What a price he's paid. They're not not worthless things like gold or silver. Ugh, they're pretty horrible, aren't they? Those gold and silver. No, God has paid with the precious blood of Christ. I want to press into that notion of redemption a little bit more to close us, but uh, you might have been sending through some questions. I'm going to pause for a little bit here. Just take a couple of questions. Then we're going to land us on that theme of redemption. So question one, what is the kingdom of God like? What does it look like? Is it here now? Fantastic set of questions. And this was one of the things I loved looking at when I was at university. We spent our first year in the Christian group at university really wrestling with this 
idea of the kingdom of God from Mark's gospel. Uh, so many places we could go for it. Um, oh, Jesus' parables, Matthew. Uh, the short answer is, no, I want to show you a story. Let's go. It'll take me a little bit of time to find the right one. So bear with me. Uh, but I'll point you there once we get there. Come to Matthew 13. Let's go with that one. There's a whole bunch of stories that Jesus tells in Matthew 13 uh, about the kingdom of God. And so it's really helpful because he starts, he actually calls it the kingdom of heaven there. Um, I'm going to pick up the short ones from verse 31. Yeah, I think they're the best. But you can look around at some of these other ones later. Uh, Matthew 13, verse 31. Jesus presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. Leaven is yeast, right? So the image is something that's slowly working through the bunch. You've got two different images there. The parables make you do a little bit of thinking. But Jesus is saying, yes, the kingdom has come now. And like a seed that's planted, it started off real small. It started off just with Jesus, the king. And then with his disciples who recognized him as king and joined their life to him and said, yeah, we're following this guy. This is our king. And then down through the centuries, it's been growing and growing and growing. The kingdom of God is all Christians everywhere down through the ages, who have said, Jesus is our king. And as it grows, it's turning into this large tree where birds and the birds of the sky come and nest. It's, it's a place, the church, the, the Christian community is a place where people can come and find refuge and find shelter. So the kingdom of God is here now. It's the people of God that are claiming Jesus to be their king and living for him as their king. Uh, the leaven is, again, showing that, that slow spreading throughout the earth. If you read one of the early ones, it talks about the fact that the kingdom is mixed and you've got some people within the Christian community who are truly following Jesus as king, others who aren't really following Jesus as king. whole bunch of parables there, all showing us this reality that when Jesus turned up, the kingdom of God has started because he is king and anyone who attaches themselves to him are a part of his kingdom. I hope that's answered the question for you. The other passage that comes to mind is in John, uh, where Pilate is probing Jesus with questions uh, and he asks Jesus, are you a king then? And Jesus replied, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, if it were, my followers would have taken up swords and fought something. Uh, Jesus is saying his kingdom is not something that correlates with an earthly nation. Uh, it's something that crosses the bounds of all those things so that we now are part of two kingdoms. We're citizens of New Zealand and citizens of Jesus' kingdom. But Jesus' kingdom comes first. I hope that's helped with that question. Uh, second question, God coming as king seems to lead to an encouragement to proclaim it in Isaiah 40, verse 9 to 10. Now that Jesus has come as king, does this mean that we as Christians should be proclaiming boldly, maybe not on the mountaintops, look, Mount Eden's a good one to just go up and shout from, uh, but in the streets. What if I don't feel equipped to do this? Uh, wonderful question. I didn't talk much on this tonight because uh, we'll come to this again in two weeks' time when we look at Isaiah 49 and the theme of the servant within Isaiah. Uh, the answer is yes, Christians should be proclaiming boldly that Jesus is king. Uh, it's good news. 
in Acts, when you meet the disciples, uh, they're being arrested for it, and they say to the rulers who are telling them, look, shut up about Jesus, we don't want to hear about it. They say, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. And so if you're not feeling equipped to do it, I'd want to come and have a chat to me. Love to talk to you about how we can equip you. We've been running a Generate course on how we talk about Jesus. Love to get you equipped for that. What I've found, though, is that feeling equipped comes from boldly just going out there and having conversations. You learn from your mistakes. You learn from trying. Uh, Once you see who Jesus is, and if you recognize that this is good news, you start having the conversations. You make mistakes. That's okay. God's in control. Uh, step out in faith, share the news about Jesus, and see what happens. Uh, take that step of boldness, proclaim it loudly. Uh, I, I long for the day when Auckland is a place that's known for Jesus, where Jesus gets the glory and fame that he deserves in this city. And that's going to come as we keep speaking of him. Uh, you might get to a point where you've told all your friends. Uh, good, good work. Uh, there's still another one and a half million people in the city. So we need to go beyond our friends to strangers. We need to take that bold step. And, and if, yeah, anyway, I could t- I'm the mission pastor here, so you've you got me going on this one now. Um, yeah, let's, let's speak of Jesus. And we'll come back to that in two weeks' time and explore that a little bit more. Okay? Let me circle back and end uh, on this theme of redemption. I'll read 1 Peter 1.18 again. You know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. I mentioned at the start that sometimes we're not good at recognizing reality. And at that point, it was about recognizing the bad reality, the negative reality. But sometimes we're not good at recognizing positive reality either. When life changes, sometimes it takes a while for that to sink in. You finish that final exam at university. You're free. It takes a few days for that to sink in, right? You're like, what should I be studying? It takes a while to sink in. And I wonder tonight if the reality of your redemption has sunk in for you. What do you think you're worth? How much do you think you're worth to God? You might not think much of yourself. You might look in the mirror, you might look into your soul and not really like what you see. Other people around you might not value you. They may ignore you. They may overlook you, they may laugh about you, they might walk all over you. For some of you, I know that the New Zealand government, it feels like they don't want you. You're waiting an age for a visa application to go through, and you have to pay them to become a citizen here. With God, it's not like that. He pays for you to be a citizen of his kingdom. To God, you are worth his life. Let that sink in. Jesus laid down his life for you, to purchase you, because he wanted you as one of his people, as a citizen in his kingdom. That's amazing. Whatever sin is in your past, whatever sin is in your present, God says to you today what he said to Israel through Isaiah, I've swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I've redeemed you. Come tonight with joy and submit to King Jesus, the one who protects his flock like a shepherd, who gathers his lambs in his arms, who carries them in the fold of his garment, who gently leads those that are nursing. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we praise you tonight as our King. You're a good King. Thank you that you want what's best for us. That you've opened our eyes to see the reality of how horrible life is without you. That we fail to rule ourselves, society, the world. That we can't do it. You're a far better King than we are. Thank you. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for laying down your life so that we might live, that we might be your people, that our sin might be forgiven and we can come back into the arms of the one that we've been rebelling against. Thank you. We don't deserve that in the slightest. You've done it anyway. We've, we've wearied you with our sin and yet you've come with comfort and forgiven us. Thank you. Strengthen us as we go out into the world this week and you're going to have pressures all around, pressuring us to conform, pressuring us to be like the world that doesn't know you, that's rebelling against you. Strengthen us, please. We want to live for you. We want to follow your rule book. Help us when it gets hard. Gently lead us. Carry us when, when you need to. So that we might shine as a beacon of light within this world, pointing others to see you and how good you are so they might willingly bow the knee before you and join us in your kingdom. Amen.